Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today we're talking about stoicism, concern, and caring. And we're going to try to dispel some, some myths and some misconceptions about stoic philosophy and practice, which has been getting more and more popular over the last decade or so, actually going back even further than that. Dan and I are both members of the Milwaukee Stoic Fellowship. We're both co-organizers of that group, which is one of many local Stoic groups worldwide. And you've, you've heard us talk, if you've listened to this radio show before, about Stoicism quite a bit. It's one of the main approaches that, that we draw upon. Um, both of us in, in our practice and thinking things through. So when we talk about applying philosophy to life, that's one of the main ones that we do. So um, I'm going to turn it over to, to Dan and let you sort of sort through some of the misconceptions about what it means to be a Stoic that, that you've seen and you've run into mm. by people who are kind of getting it right and kind of getting it wrong. Um, what would you say is, is uh, well, I mean, we could actually run through a whole bunch of them, but w- yeah. maybe we won't do that today. <laughs> what would you say is one of the biggest ones? Um, I guess the first thing is the idea that Stoicism is just like a, a group of life acts and oh. not like a whole system. Um, yeah. And the people will grab certain things from that. There's lots of like really interesting nuggets that are are part of the system that are sometimes a little bit counterintuitive but people grab onto them and they they might misconceive that this is the whole of what stoicism is and one of the big ones that is rather misconstrued is like oh the dichotomy of control kind of being like the be all end all and that's yeah we're going we're gonna to uh, talk about that in just a few <laughs> minutes. The dichotomy of control is this notion that you just stick to what you actually have control over after you've managed to identify it and forget about everything else. And mm-hmm. not really what the Stoic does, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, right. So what about um, people who use Stoicism or they conceive of it this way as a reason to – withdraw from other people to isolate themselves, to try to insulate themselves from the rest of the world. I mean, is that based in anything or is that um, like totally? Actually, Go ahead. It's totally, I'd say, counter to one of the major projects that Stoicism is trying to solve is how do you have a good life while interacting with the other wor- people in the world? That the the Stoic is someone that is in the world that is interacting daily and is not you know cloistering themselves or removing themselves from society you know they're one of the the major schools that they uh had rather uh opposing views to were the epicureans who would you know they have this whole idea of the garden and returning to the garden and kind of walling yourself off from uh, all the people that we have to deal with on day to day because they're a cause of of you know, um, being upset, and and they're like, okay, let's just like remove all the things. Um, but 
the whole point of stoicism uh, is how do you maintain that calmness, that tranquility, that equanimity, uh, and still actually be there for for the other people and with the other people. Yeah, that's actually a great point. And the Epicureans, um, I mean, we were missing some texts, actually almost all texts from them, from classical antiquity. But it does look like they actually did have a garden. And the whole point of it was to withdraw from society into this, we could almost like call it an ideal intentional community. Obviously, they must have had problems and conflicts in there and had to work them out. But what they they ended up doing is is uh, taking themselves out of, you know, the ancients called it the political sphere, but we would call it the social sphere. And you're right. The Stoics say, no, that's not the way to go. That's That's actually counterproductive. So before we jump in and talk about, well, what is Stoicism and, you know, some of the key features of it, why do you think – Today, there are so many people, and you see this in Stoic Facebook groups or other places, people say, oh, but I thought Stoicism was about withdrawing myself from anything that that could potentially bother me. Um, Where's that disconnect coming from, do you think? Well, as we touched on a little bit earlier, the the dichotomy of control is one of the first things that is kind of usually presented to people. And and a lot of people, when they first enter into it, that's like they they don't know that this is a piece that has to be supported by other things like action uh, and uh, yeah. your acceptance of things. And without the the rest of the pieces here, um, this little this one thing can't stand alone. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely be hitting on that in a bit. Um, we should talk about what Stoicism is, just in case anybody's confused and they're like, hey, I, 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 you know, I know about somebody being Stoic. It means that stiff upper lip thing. Um, we have something it's a bit different tisk. in mind. <laughs> well, now why do you say that? Tisk, tisk, tisk. I don't know. Partly I kind of. Um, associated with the British, oh. and you said the stiff upper lip, and so that's where it kind of came from. Uh, but absolutely, this uh, there's a common colloquial usage, and we usually call this like little estoicism, which is um, the, the common usage of the term nowadays. And then there's big estoicism, which is the actual philosophy of life. And I think we should go in like what is a philosophy of life and that is a a whole set of uh, mores and values in which you can live uh, a good life like that's that's the whole idea of a uh the stoic project as well as many of the other um philosophical projects at the time were like how does one live a good life yeah and uh the whole idea within stoicism there's there's a number of things that we'll get into uh in which the the argument is if you follow these things you're going to have a more calm equanimous um and uh peaceful life yeah and and i think there's other things that will come out of that necessarily but the stoics were willing to say well if you don't get that that that's okay like being more productive in the workplace you know so if you can calm your mind and not get into unnecessary conflicts with your boss with your customers with suppliers with 
your coworkers and, you know, whoever else happens to show up, the UPS person, you know, delivering a package, um, you'll, you'll certainly go further, right? You're going to get more done. Um, but the goal is not simply to be a better productive drone and getting things done. It's to, you know, change who you are as a person so that you hold on to the things that are genuinely good and you slowly strip away the things that, although you might be a little, you know, attached to them at, at first, turn out to be counterproductive for you. They turn out to be bad. And you're right. All, all the ancient philosophies that were philosophies of life were doing that. The Epicureans had their own shtick, the cynics, the uh, Platonists and Aristotelians, even the skeptics uh, were about doing something with yourself. And and they all had, um, like you said, different values that they were arranging, um, different texts, different arguments, different cognitive approaches, a lot of overlap between those, different ways of looking at the emotions, different practices that you would engage in. And they, they often would borrow from each other. You know, Seneca, great example that we've talked about here on the air, a Stoic philosopher who, when he's talking with an Epicurean friend of his, Lucilius, he has no problem quoting Epicurus, saying, well, you know, we can go into the enemy camp and take their take their stuff. I don't remember exactly, to take their fire take their tools whatever it is that they're getting from from them right um so if you had to summarize stoicism we've talked a little bit about a few things and you've hit on some key points already what else can we say about that stoicism that gives gives people an idea what's distinctive to it uh so another thing is that's kind of also directly counters this idea of like you know, not caring is that uh, Stoicism teaches that we are part of greater wholes, that, you know, uh, we are not a, you know, uh, well, there's that know, no rock. man is an island, right? Yes, yes, yeah. thank you. Um, or like a single solitary rock, you know, just facing the waves. It's, it's that we, um, as social creatures, uh, live in communities that we uh, depend on each other for uh, certain things, as well as we, because of these relationships, we have certain duties to other people around us. And in fact, that we have a duty to all people, not just those people who are closest to us. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to, to put it. Uh, they often use metaphors of what we would call social animals, like... Um, bees you know for example you know marcus says what is what is good for the hive is good for the bee um and you know if you're a drone who's mated with the queen and then been pushed out uh, left to die for winter you might say i don't know about that but you know we these metaphors can be extended only so far um but the idea i think it it is quite correct no you know we often say nobody is truly self-made um, anytime that we find somebody who's particularly successful, there's all sorts of other people in their background and factors that came together in the right place at the right time to allow the person to make their contribution. But their, their contribution is relying on an entire fabric of, of, of others. And recognizing that would be part of something else that I think we should talk about in terms of stoicism. It would be part of two particular virtues. Um, justice, you know, recognizing other people's parts that they've done is only fair. And then wisdom, using our, our minds correctly. And stoicism, um, it's not the only philosophy that talks about virtue, 
but they they say that virtue you know it's not just that virtue is its own reward um it's that virtue is what's going to lead us to happiness but virtue also is happiness or contentment or however else we want to to put that that end state so we should always prioritize um living a life of the virtues and if we realize we don't have them well then we got to work on that right <laughs> so that that's a big part of it as well um what else, so, what else do you think we need to say about for for listeners who don't know much about stoicism any anything else come to mind well the the main thing that comes to mind is kind of like why are we like we we touch on stoicism from time to time oh. Uh, but the reason that we're actually going a little bit deeper into this today is that because we are starting a season of stoicism. Um, That's right. So September through November for the international stoic community, you might say, wait, what international stoic community? Nobody ever told me about this. Well, I mean, it's been building for the last 20 years, uh, largely because of the internet, but there's like all sorts of books and literature out there. There are local stoic meeting groups. There's all sorts of cool online ways to engage people, um, groups, uh, pages, you know, and we, we also, and when I say we, I'm talking about the modern stoicism organization, which you, all, you might also say, wait, what's that? <laughs> they sponsor a annual Stoicon every year. And it used to be held in, you know, pretty, um, major metropolitan places like London or New York or Toronto. It was held one year in Athens, um, you know, because they wanted to celebrate philosophy in Greece. But last year it went online because of COVID. And it's being held online as well this year. And we'll probably keep doing that in the future. And everybody's invited. You, you know, uh, we've made it as affordable as, as possible by, um, you know, letting people just make uh, uh, donations to it. And, and it's, so it's, it's a cool event. There's lots of speakers. All sorts of local uh, groups will be having their own Stoicon Xs. It's sort of like TED and TEDx. So there's going to be all sorts of uh, Stoicon X events happening through September all the way to November. There's an international Stoic week that um, there's like a seven-day course that people can participate in. This will be, I think this will be the 10th year because it started in 2012. So that makes it, they've successfully done, if we pull it off this year, 10 years, right? Um, right. And, and That's something that I would, highly recommend if anyone's like even uh tangentially interested in the topic it's yeah. like hey just take a week you know it doesn't take much there's like a little morning thing and a little afternoon thing um but just a you know, a, a little dip your toes into what it is to have a philosophy of life yeah and yeah. the the data that they've gathered over the years is uh shown that for a large proportion of the people that go through this they have an increase in their like uh daily happiness or what they call like zest which is a number of different factors all put together yeah and resilience too being able to deal with the the stuff that life throws at you you know uh, we won't say any anything stronger than stuff but you can come up with all sorts of other <laughs> words on your own that that are you know a little bit more vociferous and negative about that i mean stoic practicing stoic philosophy will help with that um and and 
Dan's right. There's data now to to back that up, which is kind of cool. You know, yeah. That's actually something we should. While we're on the data thing, there is something else that's kind of interesting. There's other studies out there where they looked at. You, you know, you mentioned the lowercase s stoicism, the stiff upper lip, you know, stuffing your emotions down, all, all of that sort of stuff. That actually leads to negative outcomes. That makes people less resilient. Practicing actual stoic philosophy, what we're going to be talking about in just a bit, that leads to better outcomes. And so not only do we know that, you know, there's one good good path to take. We also know that the thing that's not really stoicism, but people use the word for it, is bad for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's talk talk about the dichotomy of control, because I know we mentioned it a little bit earlier. Do you want to give a little spiel about that, about what what um, it means? uh, Yes. So the dichotomy of control is there are things that are in our control, and there are things that are not in our control. Um, and sometimes people kind of like, okay, well, I have influence over this thing or whatnot. And the Stokes really make a pretty hard line that there is a distinction between those things that are completely within our control and those things that are even have a, a small modicum of outside influence and those things are the things that are not in our control. And so the things that yeah. are in our control are our... Um, things that we like, the things that we are drawn towards, the things that we are averse to, the things that, you know, we push away, um, and our uh, actions towards doing something. So, like, for example, I could, you know, be handcuffed and I could want to raise my hands over my head, but I would be disallowed physically from doing that, but I still I have this volition to raise my hands over my head. Um, but of those things. So this is kind of like a small list of things that are totally within your control. Yeah. Uh, And the things that are not in your control are things like wealth, health, reputation. You cannot will yourself not to be sick or you can't will yourself to not die. Eventually these things are going to come for you. Um, There are many things that you can do to make it so that you have a better chance of living longer as well as being healthy. But uh, to just say, I will not, you know, get sick ever, or I will not <laughs> die is not going to do much for you. Yeah, that's true. Um, same thing with money, right? You you mm-hmm. can save your money, you can be prudent in what you spend it on, but inflation can erode it away, you know, or mm-hmm. somebody could steal it. And uh, I mean, this, this, we could go on and on, we could do an entire episode about wealth, I think. Um, oh, yeah. I do want to point out that Stoics also say that another set of things that we have control over are what they call a sense, and that's a technical term. You could call it what we agree with or buy into, you know, what we cosign mentally. Um, so if I see, and this can happen both in terms of like things that present themselves to me immediately and I buy into it. And also with my reasoning processes or, or my feelings, whether they're really reasonable or not. So like if I, somebody's mean to me and I judge them to have 
said something derogatory, maybe they actually didn't, but I, I judge it to be so, then I'm going to be negatively affected by that. I'm going to get maybe hurt or angry or some other emotion, maybe anxious about it. And the Stoics would say you're responsible for those emotional responses because you could you could choose to see things differently. And, and I think it's very liberating because many people believe that our thoughts, our emotions, our opinions, they're just given to us or like our body, you know, does them and, and we have no, no control over them at all. Early, you mentioned desires and aversions. Oh, I just like what I like. And you can ask yourself, well, why do you like that? You know, you can explore it. It's not, it's not an automatic given. I mean, some things are, seem to be like pretty automatic. When we're kids, we like candy, but I, I remember taking my daughter to a um, birthday party and they, they had a cake and it was a chocolate cake. And one of the parents said, Oh, my kid doesn't like chocolate. And I was like, who doesn't like chocolate? You know, um, well, Somebody doesn't. And so, you know, you don't, it's not automatic to the human race that you must like and desire chocolate. I mean, it's pretty compelling, but it's, uh, it's controllable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And we should explore a little bit more of this, like having influence. So if, if you don't completely control but something, actually, oh, go could, ahead. Could, could I, I, I would love to jump into that, but I want to kind of delve into that. The chocolate one uh, or? Uh, just the idea of um, that we are responsible, or like we have control over these things, and I would extend this into the you know we are wanting to uh, think about this as a process, okay. and so like you know um, I might go into stoicism and like the, the an easy example is like, you know, people cut you off in traffic and that you get an automatic response. Yeah. Like this, this twinge of anger comes up and, <laughs> and, and hits you. Yeah. Um, and through time you can kind of, you know, reprogram or retrain yourself away from these judgments. And so it's not like, Oh, I'm going to take up stoicism. And all of a sudden, all these things that they say are outside or like that are, are, you know, passing things that are, um, you know, within my control that are like causing me anger, it's not going to like immediately happen. Yeah. Yeah. And that these things, um, you know, you, you'll still have these emotions arise. And I, and you know, the Stokes do break down the emotion to three different parts. The, the impression, the immediate thing that comes to mind, um, the, the place in which you can actually sit there and examine that and either assenting or dissenting to that emotion. So like, this is really similar. Like you tell your kids, like you get angry, count to 10. Right. Um, right. So it gives you that space yeah. to just go, why am I angry? And think about that. And like, because I had some judgment about that thing and that that person thinks that that was a bad. And the Stokes would say like, these things are usually not bad. Um, and and the, the the real bad thing is the way that you're going to be reacting to these things. Yeah, that's so, that's uh, that's a good point. Um, it helps you to, and it, 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 you're right. It doesn't. There's. It's not like flipping a switch where. Well, I read a stoic book and now everything falls into place, <laughs> right? Even I, I think even on a cognitive level, there's some things that in when you're reading the Stoics, unless you're actually practicing for a while, some of those things don't really makes sense completely you know right like with any 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 um intentional way of living but but yeah it does it does uh, provide a bit of 
possibility for liberation. I wanted to go back, though, to the, um, okay, the things that we don't completely control, maybe something else is running the show, like just physical processes or, you know, what the Stoics would call fate. But a lot of times it's other people who don't have complete control over that thing, but they do have some power over it. So if I really want to be uh, recognized by everybody as an important person, you know, if we, so, so we're going to use some Milwaukee metaphors here, right? We, we have a guy called the Milverine. Oh, yes. Um, and you've met him, right? I think at, at one point or I, another. Or I'm not. Okay. But you've seen him. I, I haven't oh, actually yeah. seen him. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, he looks like Wolverine, the comic book character, but he's from Milwaukee and he, he moves around and does things and, um, you know. M- mostly he's, he's known for walking everywhere that he goes and he never wears a shirt. Uh, that's right. Yeah, because he's very hairy, right? Yes. <laughs> so, so if I decide, actually, that furnishes a really great example. If I decide as a non-hairy chest guy, um, who's also not as built as that guy either, and probably doesn't have the hair to pull it off, and I don't think I could get my beard to be as bushy as, as his, that I want to replace him and become the new, whatever we're going to call maybe I'm the Milwaukee Sabretooth or something. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd be the Milwaukee dude, but okay. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should, like, as they say, stay in your lane, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so so we'll, we'll shift to that. I decide that I want to be, like, the character of the dude, which some people say that I, I look like. Um, and so I, I put on the, um, what would Cardigan. we call it, the diet, the dialect that he oh. has. Oh, I, well, I have oh. the sweater, right? Yes. And I could, I could easily get the kind of stuff. I would just wear a dirty T-shirt and shorts mm. and flip-flops and walk around right? <laughs> and i start saying like that's your opinion man and things like that um there's no guarantee that i'm going to be able to pull it off even if i'm really trying because other people can say no nah, i don't think he's the dude at all you know I, mm-hmm. it's not a very good impression it's actually this is another kind of funny thing i think we might have talked about this on air there are celebrities who um they go into like a crowd of people who are impersonating them and people say, you're not a very good impersonator of this person or that person or this person. Get out of here. <laughs> you know? And now what this points out is so much of social life is, is pretty arbitrary. And if we allow ourselves to get too drawn into it and, and make the measure of our happiness or success that we pull these things off, it's just not going to happen. It's like, you know, Epictetus talks about this musician who can play his instrument really well, but he doesn't control what the crowd does. And if he if he takes the crowd's applause as an index for him being a good musician, he's going to be filled with anxiety because you, you just can't control that, you know. Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, I can do things and those should make things happen. Yeah, go ahead and try that because... You know, the Stoics will say, you'll find out real quick just how little control you have over those matters. Now, this leads us to another point. If you don't have any control over those matters, shouldn't you just like withdraw completely from them and say, uh, I'm not going to play that, that cricket game. I'm, I'm going to take my, my pieces and go home or pick up my ball and walk away. So this whole reminds me of like, you know, you can like you're you're a aficionado of metal, but some people really don't like metal. That's right. And yeah. so if <laughs> if you go to a like the the Philharmonic and you put on a metal show, <laughs> the, the the audience there is you you might be the best metal band in the world. Yeah. And you are still going to get potentially booed. Um 
so you you find your audience and uh, okay. like it, or you you know, if you if you need like this is the audience the only audience and like either you you define like what you want to make and if you if like metal is the thing that you got to make then you make that metal um kind of regardless of that outcome um and but if you're like you know your goal is to have the adoration of the crowd uh you, you might do things that would uh lead you to have a better chance but yeah. that there's always that chance and it's not going to be in your control that's a really great example that i think we can draw some other analogies to and it, and it's it's not just the applause or adoration of the crowd per se it's this crowd right mm-hmm. so if you want um People who are more likely to appreciate what you're doing, go go play at, at um, Shank Hall, you know, yeah. uh, where metal bands play, local metal metal bands. Um, that would make a lot more sense than trying to go to the Milwaukee Symphony and walk out on stage and start shredding, right? Unless they've invited you to do that. And and you know, we could say this with so many things. You know, when somebody has a bad breakup, we often say things like, "Oh, you know, there's many other fish in the sea." And that's right. You know, there's nothing that says that your affection and capacity to love has to be met by this particular person. And if you can, if you can like withdraw from where things clearly aren't lining up, that enables you to start looking elsewhere. And, and we could say this about job stuff. I mean, maybe some people aren't suited for certain jobs and they make themselves miserable by insisting on pushing that. You know, we have that expression, the, the, uh, what is it? Square peg in the round hole or is it the round peg in the square hole? I mean, either one square doesn't peg. work, right? Right. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of jobs I think are, are sort of like that. I actually see that sometimes with, uh, people who have the wrong major in college and they're like, well, you know, it's junior year and I've already got these credits in and they're miserable. And you're like, do you want to go and become this? And they're like, not really, but <laughs> I'm, I'm there. And, and, you know, I think the following That's the sunk, okay. sunk cost fallacy. Well, you need to explain that a little bit. For okay. So sunk cost fallacy is the, you know, the, the fact that we often throw good money after bad. And whenever we like either make an investment and either, you know, money or time or any other particular uh, external good, uh, we can say like, well, I've already done, I'm like, you know, I'm in for a penny and for a pound type yeah. thing. Um, but if you were to like stop and say, okay, I'm starting from point zero, does it make any point more sense to continue down or like to put money into this investment, either yeah. time or whatever? Um, and if the answer is no, then it doesn't matter what you've spent already. Uh, any extra money that you're putting in there is just, you know, good money after bad. You know, it's interesting because we're going to talk about emotions soon. And I think that um, there you can you can bring up a couple different emotions. One reason why people stick with um, sunk costs, particularly if there's like conflict involved with it, and we're seeing this in terms of people's politics right now, is um, shame. They would mm-hmm. much rather stick to a 
uh, a false narrative about how things happened and who's to blame than admit that they were wrong. Because admitting that they're wrong, especially after they've been in conflict with other people, means feeling embarrassment or, or shame. And that, that fear can keep people glued there. Epictetus also says something really interesting in one of his discourses, Epictetus the Great Stoic Philosopher. Um, he's talking about a guy who has decided to do something. And I don't remember exactly what stupid thing he decided to do, but he's saying, I'm being a stoic because I'm being resolute. I'm sticking with the thing and nobody's going to influence me. And Epictetus says, hold on, buddy, we've got to back up one step. Mm -hmm. Is the thing that you decided to do reasonable? If it's not reasonable and you're just sticking to it, that's not stoicism, that's stubbornness. That's obstinacy. (laughs) And, and I think, you know, sometimes people get there, you know, they get that emotional comportment where nobody is going to move them. And that's not, that's not really stoicism because to, to be stoic means to, um, live in accordance with our nature. And that is a rational nature. And that, that, that's a good segue into the next thing we are going to talk about, which is, um, it's not just a rational nature, it's a social nature, right? Right. So we're we're social creatures with a capacity for reason. Kind of depends on how much we actually use that capacity or how much we uh, build it, but we do have that capacity. That, that's true. I think a lot of people, when they hear that we're rational creatures, they assume that rationality is like an all or nothing thing, too. And, mm-hmm. and it's definitely not. I mean... We're born with a great potential for developing as rational creatures, but I, I don't know if any of us ever fully de- develop and deploy that. I mean, I do, I do dumb stuff myself, and I'm, you know, I mean, I, I should be pretty well along since I've been studying philosophy and teaching it for a long time. <laughs> Presumably, if philosophy helps you out uh, mm-hmm. to be more rational, then at 51 years old, I should be you know, pretty rational. But, you know, uh, we, all, we all have these pockets. And then the question is, well, do we like hide them away or do we, mm-hmm. do we try to work on that? Do we recognize where we need to, to do more? And I, I don't think that I've never met anybody who I would consider like totally, completely rational all the time. Have you? No. And and this is why I think a lot of like economic theory is, is pretty funny because they kind of like base they make it that off assumption. of this. Yeah. All humans are perfectly <laughs> rational. They're always going to like get like the the best um the most yeah. things for them. But there's so many things that are uh out there that will you know that we make decisions about that are not in our best like financial interest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we often, I mean, I think this is another thing we could explore at great length. There's a difference between like reasoning and rationalization, you know, mm-hmm. rationalization is what people do after they've made a decision and they're trying to look for some, some plausible reasoning process for it. And right. You know, some people will go for anything. <laughs> <laughs> reasoning means that you actually like try to seek out the truth and you're probably willing to change your mind to some degree mm-hmm. if if factors change or somebody brings up a good point. And this goes back to the social nature thing. I mean, how do you figure out when you've got things wrong? Sometimes you can figure it out by, you know, you put your finger in the mousetrap and you realize pretty quickly that by the pain inflicted on you that that was a dumb decision. Mm-hmm. But there's so many things where we really need other 
other people to come along and say, you're screwing up, man. Uh, take a look at this, you know, and, and maybe that's part of our social nature as well. The correctability, you might say, of human human nature. Yeah, there's there's so many other things. And it comes down to this idea that we are social creatures, yeah. that um, a lot of times we will make bad logical deductions and reasoning um, or rationalization in order to make sure that we maintain our uh, reputation within mm. that social group. And so this is one of the things that Stoicism tries to like put forth is that like our uh, reputation is not a good in and of itself, and that we should try to remove that from our the basis of our reasoning in choosing the good, uh, uh, virtuous decision and ha- the action that follows. You know, we can say that about pretty much all of the things that the Stoics consider to be, and we're going to use a technical term here, indifference. Not mm-hmm. meaning that they don't have any value at all, but they should be valued less than the, the genuine good, which is, you know, moral goodness, virtue, um, which includes wisdom. I think you could say that about wealth. A lot of people make bad decisions on the basis, which they rationalize on the basis of, you know, trying to protect their income or their property. Um, we can say this about pleasure, you know, mm-hmm. pleasure is something or the, the prospect of pleasure can easily lead us into making bad decisions. Uh, power, uh, authority, positions, those sorts of things. People will often really stick their necks out in ways they won't for wealth <laughs> to get a little power over somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that that's quite true. Um, so the Stokes are here to try to find us a place where we can, you know, live in accordance with like both of these natures that you know, were, we're wanting to be part of this group. And how do we interact with people in a just way, like the way that they ought to be treated as well yeah. as um, not sacrificing those things that are actually the goods. They are uh, moral actions here. And, these things usually sometimes like people because they have different ideas of what we call these indifference as actual goods Mm -hmm. these things come into conflict and the stoics are saying like there's two levels of things and and the virtues are are up here and everything else is down here doesn't mean you know as you said it doesn't mean that they don't have value but uh none of these things can really be traded for those things up here these virtues yeah, so to take an example, it's it's better to have some financial resources than to be impoverished. And the Stoics wouldn't say don't manage your money wisely. You know, mm-hmm. you you actually should do that. But no amount of wealth that you accumulate and no amount of good decisions with uh, your wealth is going to make you into a good person. You can be a vicious person in many other respects and be filthy rich. Um, money doesn't make the the morality, you could say. And we could say the same thing about power, having a nice body. I mean, if you have a body, as we all do, I mean, if you don't, you're dead. <laughs> I don't know how you'd be listening to this if you don't have a body. Um, you know, you should take care of it. You shouldn't, like, abuse it. Um, you should probably wash it every so often, give it some exercise, put the right kind of things into it, you know, um, try to minimize putting bad things into it. But 
you know, that that's not going to make you into a good person. You go to the gym, there's plenty of jerks at the gym. You, I mean, you can tell they're the ones who pick up the uh, the cleaner bottle and they, they take it with them because they're selfish. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, the ones, they're the ones that don't don't clean off the way, the, the exercise equipment when they're done with it because they, they're lazy or, you know, pick whatever right. else you want, right? Uh, right. They might have very nice looking bodies, but... That doesn't doesn't make them uh, great. So that's that that's uh, that's a great um, thing to focus on. How does that pertain then to this mistaken idea of the Stoic as withdrawing themselves from other people? So I wanted to say, like, you know, if you don't believe that we are like social creatures, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the idea of solitary confinement is like considered in many parts of the world to be torture because removing ourselves, like without our will yeah. away from other peoples is uh highly detrimental to our mental well-being um and and part of this is because you know to be ostracized is uh gives us a similar feeling to the dread of death as you know we as humans as uh tribal peoples before we really started sitting down and doing like agriculture and whatnot um being removed from the group was basically equivalent to death it was very hard for you to survive without the group um and that is that is really built into our, our core psychology here yeah and it's still used by some uh groups as a mode of punishment shunning banishing disfellowing you know mm -hmm. can really do a number on on a person especially if they're heavily invested in that that particular group and they don't know how to make those sort of connections elsewhere. I mean, you know, in, a, in another respect, when people are forced out of their workplace, you know, they're made redundant, they're laid off. Um, that's often quite psychologically devastating to people because they, that would be part of their, their little um, clan or tribe or whatever they're part of. Right. Right. And, you know, because we define um, ourselves a lot of times, by the groups that we are part of and we you know uh, realize our own human nature in you know the interactions and the camaraderie that we have with the groups and yeah, so this yeah. kind of kind of reminds me of so there's this idea of dunbar's number which is like at about 150 it's the the number of people the people that a group can maintain with fairly close connections before it either uh, disintegrates or splits. Okay. And so uh, it's it's really hard to have uh, more than 150 close friends. And we're not talking Facebook friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some people have the the, the full complement of 5,000 on Facebook, right? Right. Um, and but we as as humans have this like special ability that we've developed as a like a psychological tool of creating um categories for us to belong to which supersedes these dunbar numbers and so okay. um instead of like sticking with like a tribe of up to 150 people um we decided like oh well we can like all call ourselves you know, a citizen of this state, or we can all call ourselves a member of this religion, or we can all call, you know, whatever, like, group. And even though yeah, yeah. we don't know that per group or that um, those people specifically, like, we can say uh, fandoms. Like, I'm right now I'm in North Carolina. And if I see someone with a Packer hat on, I'm going to go up and talk to him. <laughs> Actually, I saw a guy with a, um, 
a Bucks uh, shirt at a Trader Joe's the other day, and I struck up a conversation with him because you know what? We yeah, had something yeah. in common. We were part of this group, even though like I've never met him, Madam. It's funny because uh, I don't know what the Bucks equivalent of this, but Packer Nation, right? Mm-hmm. And it yeah. exists spread out throughout the entire. I mean, it exists in other places, but the entire United States, any major city. You can go on game day and find a bar where the Packers game will be playing. Mm-hmm. And when you walk in, this is actually something that that my wife Andy observed in New York City, where people are, you know, kind of, you know, they might put on airs about talking like a Midwesterner, and so they come in uh, off the street, and they, it's a place called Kettle of Fish. And at first, they're kind of relating to each other as as New Yorkers, New Yorkers that that are of a certain you know, type and and sort. And then after a while, all the Yotter Hay language comes out, you know. And <laughs> well, don't you know? Exactly. <laughs> you know, because they, they, they gel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good example. As a matter of fact, that's a good segue, too, to talk about emotions because people yeah. often get quite emotional about sport. And, you know, a lot of people have this mistaken notion about stoicism that it means like turning off the emotions almost like if you're turning off a – a uh, water flow or just stuffing them down or, you know, trying to ignore them as much as possible. And that's clearly not what classic Stoics taught or thought, right? Right. And we've already touched about this a little bit in the, the breaking up of the emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the, the Stokes were reportedly like the ancient ones, rather jovial individuals. Yeah. Friendly. Uh, you could yeah. say, right. They, they, they had fun. Um, right. It was a Chrysippus who's supposed to have died uh, laughing at at a funny sight. I mean, he was an old guy, so uh, <laughs> it was something about a donkey, and I don't quite remember exactly what happened. But you know, they they didn't have a lack of a sense of humor, and they hmm. loved other people. Right? And so it's it's the exact opposite here. Like the Stokes are not about uh, stuffing down these emotions, but to more fully understand them, to be so close to them that you are not taken away by them, that you you know them intimately, and why you have these emotions arising in the first place. Yeah, so a good example of this is one that they, they didn't have any positive role for as such, but we all run into sooner or later loss or grief, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean – this is kind of morbid to say this, but everybody that you know, they're either going to die before you or die or you're going to die before them or you're going to die at the same time. Um, so sooner or later, like, you know, you and I are friends. Um, if we're friends long enough, we'll, one of us will go to the other's funeral. <laughs> you know? And, you know, presumably you you miss people and, and all that. And the Stoics would say, well, you're it's it's not human to not miss people or to not feel sad but that doesn't mean you have to as people did in ancient times like tear your beard out mm-hmm. or wear black for a year or rip your clothes or, or you know sometimes people these days like they they jump on the coffin as it's going down into the grave that's 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 not serving anybody anything and it's not a sign that you actually love them maybe the sign would be like seneca says you go out and find new friends to replace mm-hmm. the ones that you've lost. Wouldn't, wouldn't your friend want that uh, for you? Um, the Stoics also thought they were positive emotions, and among those, they included love, affection, concern for others, care. 
Um, these are these are not things that we should be avoiding, but we we should be avoiding doing them in the wrong way. So, right. you know, if you think about concern for somebody, there's like there's being concerned where you take prudent steps to help them out and then there's the like being a worry wart where you're getting you're getting more out of like the appearance of being concerned or or um you know occupying yourself with needless worries and the stoics say well that that's counterproductive get rid of that you know right so making those distinctions between positive and less productive emotional states i think would be an important part of stoicism and once again, this, these are things that one works on. These aren't just a, a flip the yeah. switch type things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. You know, some of them you don't get the opportunity to work on them every day unless unless you do some exercises. Um, right. So grief. I mean, hopefully you don't have somebody dying every single day in your life, right? Um, <laughs> but if you've had a recent loss, you can think about how you're dealing with it each day. I suppose. Um, and what, you can, else, what, are, what are some other examples of emotions that you can work on bit by bit by bit um let's see uh hopefully like greed and, and like okay kind of ruminating on on what is is it actually a good like if you have this avarice towards these things and like trying to reorient yourself towards the things that are actually good okay um i was thinking about just the the losing people and you can like there's the uh negative visualization which we've spoken about in the past talking about how we can like think about okay i'm going to think about like i know that eventually one of my loved ones is going to die and maybe i can stem this a little bit by thinking about how i would react to it and try to kind of experience a small portion of that in order to kind of inoculate you against the 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 rush, the like, the tidal wave that kind of hits us when you know people pass yeah, away, especially yeah. if it's sudden. That's a great example of something. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, where the Stoics differed from the Epicureans, the Epicureans would say, "Why dwell on negative stuff? You know, um, you should have as pleasant a life as possible. So don't think about people dying." before they do, you'll, you'll get to think about that when they do die, you know, um, just enjoy yourself for right now. But, a, but a stoic would say, well, this will help me handle things better when they actually do pass away. Mm-hmm. Um, or not them, but somebody else. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some of the other emotions that yeah. we, we mentioned a little bit. So, doesn't care for others make us vulnerable to things that aren't in our control? Doesn't that disadvantage us in a certain way? Um, but don't you also gain advantages from you know having those relationships? This is ah, a, yeah. the things that you have to give and take. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of the um, the end of the Gem- uh, wow the Return of the Jedi. Okay. The, uh, Luke is in the throne room of the Emperor, and the Emperor is uh, saying, um, "Like your your friends are your downfall." And Luke is retorting, "Like no, like my friends are the, the reason that I'm able to move through and um, eventually surmount this obstacle." Yeah, I don't. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but doesn't the Emperor also like when he when he sees that Luke has beaten his father, Darth Vader? Doesn't he say, "Okay." Um, 
that's fine. Now you can become my my new apprentice. Right. Take your dad's place. I mean, he's dead to me, you know? Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> and it shows you how, I guess, little they cared for those relationships. They, they were yeah. just tools and not something to actually cultivate and care for. Yeah, that's a great point. We often talk about this as treating people instrumentally or as a mere means to something else. You can't really love somebody or respect them or care for them as a person if you're if there isn't at least some treating them as if they mattered. Right. That's you know, you're bringing in a little Kant there uh that one yeah. should always treat someone as um an ends and never merely as a means. Yeah. Yeah, that was I mean that was a great way that he articulated it. I think there's there's this is a total digression. There's there's a lot of things where I like reading Kant, but I'm like, well, I don't think this is true at all. <laughs> I think I think he got that one right. Yeah. Um You know, so oh, go ahead. Please. I was going to say another another thing that we want to talk about is our attachments to our our friends and families um, and, and other people that we care about. It might be people people at work. It might be um, clients. It might be other people. And we can, we can take this uh, attachment that we do, in fact, have an experience, some of us more, some of us less, and extend it to all sorts of other people who we might end up being connected with or being involved with or or caring for. And um, I think Stoicism would tell us we have to be realistic about these. And we're going to talk about a practice that, that ties in with this. You know, human beings are vulnerable to all sorts of damage, whether psychological or physical. They're not going to last forever. Uh, we're all living off of warranty, you could say, right? We're all on borrowed time. And most people are not going to be Stoics, even if we are. So mm -hmm. we can't expect them to have the same sort of resiliency if we're practicing it that, that, um, you know, we could, we could have. Um, and we, we also have a whole, as you mentioned earlier, we have a whole set of whatever we want to call them duties, appropriate actions. Those are the Stoic terms for this. We might think mm -hmm. of them as, moral responsibilities. Um, some of these are more stringent or strict or, or they have a higher priority than others. Um, but, you know, when we pass somebody on the street, they're not nothing. Um, right. And if we can help them out, the Stoics would say we, we ought to do that. And this can be furthered by having the right kind of feelings or trying to cultivate the right kind of feelings, maybe faking the funk until we can actually feel it. Um, so th this comes to like the kind of the, the basis of the idea of justice for stoicism. And so mm -hmm. justice is this kind of this large category of things. It's not just like, you know, what happens in the courthouse, but it is also <laughs> all, all those things that, one ought to interact with other people for um like uh i ought not to uh, call you bad names partly because you're another human so i shouldn't be doing that in the first place also especially because you're my friend and friends don't tend to do that to each other yeah uh and so we have like levels of obligations that we have 
based on our roles to other people. And so, like, I would have um, different obligations to my significant other than I have to you. And I have different obligations that I have to my parents than I have to my significant other. Yeah. We should mention, too, that um, justice is a virtue for the Stoics. So this is a character trait that we – it's not optional. It's something that we ought to have. Um, and so, again, to go back to our original theme of, of stoicism doesn't mean withdrawing from everybody else. This is this is part of what it means to be a social being. You you connect with all these other people and you try to do do right by them and, and by yourself. Um, there's there's another side to justice. And I just want to hit on this quick because I do want to get us to this practice that we'll discuss. Mm-hmm. The Stoics didn't just mean like not violating people's rights or honoring your agreements or following the rules by justice. They are super clear that justice includes kindness and um, beneficence and whatever else you want to call it, being good to other people. That's that's a part of justice for them. Right. So it's, let's oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, it, it's. Uh, just and right for us to go to his practice here at the moment. Um, <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> so, so Epictetus tells us, and we won't read the whole thing, but in, in uh, Enchiridion or the handbook number three, in everything that pleases the soul or supplies a want or is loved, remember to add this to the notion. What What is the nature of each thing? If you love uh, an earthen vessel, say it's an earthen vessel. Because that, when it's broken, you're not going to be disturbed. If you're kissing a child or a wife, say that it's a human being who you're kissing. For when the wife or child dies, you will not be disturbed. Now, that sounds rather cold, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Right. How can we use this in a way that isn't being cold and withdrawing from other people? I mean, Epictetus says, if you do love people, and so he's assuming that you mm-hmm. are being loving towards them, Um. We don't have to demand of the world things that it can't give, like my wife living forever. I mean, I'd love if she could, uh, provided I could, too. Um, but even if, even if I couldn't, I'd still wish that for her. But the world isn't going to give us that. All right. Now, to it, be to love and also be aware of the limitations of us as finite beings. Uh, to, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, that... Uh, we will lose people and we will have to live on. And how does one continue to do the things that are required of us even when we lose those that we love? So we were joking before we got on that my, my cat, who's almost 19 years old, is, is doing quite well. And uh, we were talking about this uh, practice. And, and Dan said, you should whisper into her ear every time that you you hold her. You know, you are a cat and you, you are mortal. You will die. Now, that's, you know, a little over the top, but we could do something like that, couldn't we? Remind yeah. ourselves of the... Remind we, ourselves. In some ways, we, we have more when we do that. We we honor the relationship. Um, we, we also work better for it because we know we know that this is a finite thing this won't always be and so the time is now yeah well that's a good place to to leave off with uh these reflections do you want to lead us out on a pithy quote yeah so today we leave you with the words of aristotle at his best man is the noblest of all animals separated from law and justice he is the worst yeah.